So things are a little bit different on this episode of the Paracast. David Biedney is, as we say, resting, nursing a cold. And we've asked Jeff Ritzman, our friend Jeff Ritzman, to be the guest co-host. So, Jeff, welcome aboard to the Paracast. Well, hey, Gene. Hey. How are you doing? <laughs> We're doing fine. We're still kind of considering the two shows we did with Jim Sparks, the contactee, author yeah. of The Keepers I wonder what they're keeping from us or anything like that. And I know you listened to a lot of both episodes, Jeff. Did you get a feeling for what this guy is doing and whether he might have any chance of telling us an accurate story there of something that he experienced over the years? Well, you know, it came down to me a lot of a lot of what I heard was um, kind of like in my opinion like amalgamates of different stories little pieces of different things that i've heard before that kind of seem to flow into his story in one way or another it's like a laundry list saying i want this to sound kind of correct that way yeah i mean i i didn't get you know i i personally didn't walk away from listening to either time with really anything new if you want to call it that i didn't get anything from it as far as getting us closer to maybe understanding something you know i mean based on my own stuff i didn't really see anything of what i've seen and heard and what have you i haven't heard anything from him that was similar to me and that's not to say that he's not telling the truth or what have you like that it's notwithstanding but i mean i think one thing people have to keep in mind is like how subjective the whole experience is and how different people experience it so you know i don't lend credence to myself nor him either way i mean all i can do is relate what I've experienced from my point of view and my, you know, through my eyes and ears and what have you. But with Jim's stuff, I mean, I think, you know, it would be hard for anyone who doesn't have the experience, it'd be hard for anyone to understand how subjective it is. And I think maybe Jim is is recalling things that perhaps is the way he perceived them at the time, if that makes any sense. Well, that's assuming, of course, that what he's saying is completely correct and accurate here. Exactly. I mean, there's... um there's a big thing in in the whole experience or realm that a lot of people believe that the the experience itself is multi-layered in that you have you know your initial fear response and then you uh, you know back in you know what was it 10 12 years ago the big the big scenario was that they were stealing sperm and eggs from you know from eggs and women sperm from then and making this hybrid race of you know a mix between us and them and in my opinion, I always looked at that because I never had that kind of experience ever. And I knew a lot of people as well who had never had that kind of experience at all. And we all kind of looked at that like, could that be perhaps something that the aliens or whatever you want to call them are imparting onto us to hide the deeper meaning or to hide the deeper experience? So it's kind of like, are you lifting layers of an onion apart to really get at the center to see... You know, or are we getting closer to that? So basically, we're not seeing the actual event in this case. You're seeing maybe what, what at least we recall, the screen memory that's implanted the, on your mind. Either the screen memory, or your mind is is you know you're trying to to perceive something that is so on the edge of our perception that literally your mind may make something up to make it make sense or to make it have continuity. You know, I experienced stuff like that maybe early on a little bit, but 
as things went on and as I realized more things uh, or realized uh, that maybe this isn't this isn't exactly what it is, maybe I should try to look at this from a different angle. When your thought angle changes, you tend to perceive things a little bit differently, maybe with a little bit more clarity as to the actual physical reality. But at the same time, when you when you end up let's just say for instance you know you're standing out in your front lawn and you see a flying saucer and it turns into a giant cow <laughs> is that the reality of it probably not so knowing that these beings can affect your perception what then is the real experience that's the question and the matter that's of the confusion question. now yes <laughs> Taking apart the things that Jim Sparks said, now, one of the things that he was asked in the second interview was about odors connected with his particular encounters with greys and reptilians, and he did mention in connection with the greys the sulfurous odor that has sometimes been reported. Now, I first read about that, I think, in the days that John Keel was writing about all these things. So could you possibly tell me here, did you encounter anything like that, that odor of sulfur, burnt sulfur, or anything like that, when you had your particular experiences? You know, as a kid, I can remember instinctively uh, that I'm trying to think, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember the exact instance that this hit me. I know I was really young, and I can't exactly pinpoint the exact experience it came from, but I remember in one particular time when I woke up in a place that I didn't think was quite normal and, and I couldn't move. Uh, I know if, if past listeners are referring to earlier shows that I was on, I, I know I mentioned like the black sheets in the black room with the blue light. This was not one of those experiences. This was something that was a more or less a, a specific point. It wasn't the night after night type of thing. This was after that. I think I was probably I was probably 13, maybe 12, and I woke up in an area that was very, very bright, and I couldn't see where that light was coming from. I remember that the light did hurt my eyes, so I couldn't keep my eyes open. It was like you were looking right into the sun. It was that kind of bright. And I remember it smelling like a hospital, like that extraordinarily sterile smell, if you if you know what that is. Like almost an alcoholish type smell. Sulfur, no. The beings themselves, I have never I have never had them had that smell or have left that smell around the house. There is a smell that they have. I'm not going to say exactly what it is because I don't want to. I, that's one of the things I kind of use as kind of a control sample just for my own knowledge of, of what people tell me. If somebody tells me, I have it written down and I have posted it on the Internet in different spots, but I never get any hits on it. I never, uh, I very seldom had anybody on the net write me and say, hey, I know that smell, <laughs> you know. I've had people I've met personally give me a description of what they think it smells like. Uh, I will say, uh, let's say, let's put it this way: it's akin to a paper-ish smell, paper-ish. But there's a certain quality to that paper that, unless I told you, you wouldn't even think of it. That, that they have a smell. Okay, to so it, you don't want to really tell us your the not specific the, not aspect. the exact specific, but it's a paper, like a paper smell you know, that I'll- I know is associated. Yeah. <laughs> 
We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAG. GA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me first tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg. David Biedney's taking the evening off because he's nursing a bad cold, and as our guest co-host, we have Jeff Ritzman, and we're talking about some of Jeff's encounters vis-a-vis the Jim Sparks case, and one of the things that interested me was the odors in connection with UFO cases, UFO abductions, contacts, etc., etc. Now, I remember as a child, and I mentioned this a couple of times, I had these recurring dreams where I saw this huge, dark object, and then wake up in a cold sweat. And this was a recurring dream that happened, I guess, between the time I was maybe seven to nine or ten years old. And I barely remember it. But I remember also, for a period of time, I would constantly smell this odor that was somewhat like burnt sulfur. And that just came back to my mind after I was listening to Jim Sparks because he mentioned that. But once again, what he said is nothing that hasn't been in the UFO literature for many years. So let's look at that, okay? Let's look at that. We've discussed the things that have happened to you. Listening to Jim Sparks, do you think he actually had a real experience or a series of real experiences or what? I mean, again, I think it would be probably tough to say. I mean... If I, you know, if I sat and I picked the whole story apart, I mean, I could just easily say I didn't either, <laughs> you know, you know, only only by virtue of my experience can I say this is what happened to me uh, and I can relate it as best I possibly can, which I've done on this show several times now to the most extreme detail that I can use to paint someone a picture of what it's like. If they were in that same experience, would they experience it exactly the same as me? And I have my doubts. You know, so, I mean, do I think Jim is telling the truth? Maybe as far as his perception is, 
but I don't know that I necessarily believe that his perception is correct. Put it to you that way. So you think he actually had at some point in time one or more genuine encounters? Well, you know, Gene, you're talking to a guy who kind of thinks that I think of it this way. I and I'm gonna. This is gonna. This is gonna spark a lot of a lot of discussions on the message board and probably a lot of negativity uh, about what I'm gonna say here. All right, go ahead. Go but, for it. <laughs> but my opinion is is that as far as the experience itself goes, I think that if you if you sat down a researcher and said, out of a hundred people, how many people in that hundred do you think have had an experience with this enigma? I think they would probably say, oh, probably around two or three at the most. I tend to think it's more like half of them. I think people throughout their lives come into contact with either this mechanic of this thing or of something else that is akin to it. And I think it strikes them so odd that they don't even think about it. They just blow it off. You know, you talk about your dream of, of having a recurring dream of this big thing and you wake up night after night with... I mean, why would that be such a horrible dream? Why would you wake up in fear of that? You know, I, I'm of that opinion that this affects a lot more people than what we have previously thought. And I've had a lot of other experiencers tell me, you know, one in particular I know uh, had told me... Um, He's like, I believe everyone has it at one time, one time or another. Whoa! Um, Wait so, a minute. Yeah. Wait a yeah. minute here. Everyone, well, are we saying that we have a massive amounts of UFOs or aliens abducting us or visiting I, us, or I is this some kind of collective experience that we all have at one time or another? I think it could very well be that kind of thing. Which that, one? That the second that we that it's a collective experience that okay. you know it may not be as severe. You know, you may not have as severe a reaction to it as I do. It may not be as vivid to you, but at some point you have come into contact with this, whatever it is. And you guys here at this show know I'm not like a big proponent of the ET thing. I'm not even a big proponent of it being a 100% all the time, 100% physical reality. You know, I think it can be either. I think it has a choice, whatever it is. I do believe it's external to us. So, you know, it, it gets very complex with me because I keep going, you know, in, into them onion layers again to the point where I think to myself sometimes that maybe this does affect way more people than we ever previously thought. And I think if people on the message board would sit down or anybody listen to this, sit down and do this one exercise, write down a list of every bizarre, strange unexplainable in your opinion thing that has happened to you in your entire life that you can remember and i think you will find out that a lot of people on your board are going to say you know what i sat down and i wrote that list and there is more than a few things that are really bizarre could that be part and parcel to what we're talking about could it be that deep that it actually can either peripherally or directly affect just about everybody that's the question i'd like to know well, then we start wondering how many people have either suppressed such experiences or they don't want to admit they've had such experiences. Exactly. And the other question being that people who report sightings. Now, one of the claims I've heard from time to time is that if you probe real deep some of these people, they're hiding the really weird details 
of what oh, they experienced. There is no question about it. I mean, I've I've talked to you know a couple of hundred people in my day at at really extreme length. It's way more than just one night of three or four hours of questioning. I'm talking, you know, back in the day when I'd I'd get a call from somebody having an experience or having a sighting. I mean, I'd literally spend four or five nights with them for up to five and six hours a night sometimes, you know, throughout the course of maybe a month. And, you know, a lot of them would say, well, let me tell you this, but don't put this in your report because nobody's going to believe this part of it, <laughs> you know. And, and I felt the same way for a long time. I didn't want to tell anybody what had happened to me until I said, you know, it's possible that the details of what might get us a little further is in that bizarreness that most people don't want to talk about it so maybe I should like talk about that so you know that's kind of been my thing I don't hold anything back and I don't care how bizarre it sounds you know I have to report it exactly as I experience it or I did experience it and let people think what they will you know I mean um, I believe you're right I think a lot of people hold back the the high strangeness aspects of it because they think it just makes it that much more unbelievable and you know, something that I never really encountered is in my in my own experience. It doesn't affect me one way or the other. If someone says I believe you or I don't believe you, I, that doesn't affect me because it is what it is to me, and I can't get away from it. So that's the end of the story for me. Now but I'm getting people, from this, and I know we've run back and forth mm-hmm. a little bit in our discussion, mm-hmm. that you are to some degree impressed by Jim Sparks and what he says he's experienced. To to a point. I haven't gone back round robin with his story to actually, you know, if I sat down with Jim, I would have to sit down and ask him one series of questions, you know, and then go through 30 or 40 other ones and then come back to those first ones and and reiterate them in a different way to see if he's consistent with his story. I know there were a couple things that I heard on the Paracast, and I I can't put my finger on them right now as to what they were, but there were a couple that I was like, "Eh, I'm not sure that's exactly how that, you know, that went. I, I can't say that's proof of someone being deceptive but it's also certainly one of the things that you look for in trying to evaluate the truthfulness of a story you know is can they recount verbatim almost what the experiences was over and over and over through you know a a decent span of time and um I think I saw someone on on the board mention that, you know, uh, this didn't exactly jive with what he had said before. And I'm like, ah, here we go, you know. So at this point, if you ask me straight out, do I think he's legit, I'd have to say, you know, I'm undetermined about it because I really, I would need to study him and his case a lot more. And it wouldn't be something like us having him on a radio show for a couple of hours. You'd have to sit with him in person for a day a couple mm-hmm. of days and get a sense of what he has to say. Exactly, exactly. That's that's it, 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 again. It all comes down to his perception of what he experienced. Is it accurate? Who knows? You know. Do I think he's being deliberately deceptive? I can't tell that yet. You know, it is a it is a lot deeper than what than than just listening to somebody's story and evaluating whether they're telling the truth or not. It's it's got to be a pretty much an ongoing process to really to really try to evaluate and peel back the layers and see what's really going on. Well, we're going to peel back another kind of layer, which is the Soviet UFO phenomenon, and we're going to talk to Paul Stonehill, who's the co-author of a book called Mysterious Sky, and we're going to look at what has happened in Russia. And, of course, when it was the Soviet Union, and to see whether some really fascinating mysteries can be uncovered there. And that's coming up next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We 
want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. So Paul Stonehill, first question I have for you in regard to Russian UFO phenomenon, what is the present attitude of the Russian government towards UFOs? Uh, as far as I know, they don't uh, specifically have any programs nor any money allocated after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, there hasn't been any program officially. But what's interesting is that at least one of the functionaries, military functionaries of the official Soviet uh, program to study what they call the anomalous aerial phenomenon. His uh, name is uh, Pluxin. He's still around. He is a very very well-informed source, and he is an expert in the Russian defense ministry on, uh, let's say, paranormal subjects. Uh, there is someone else, but uh, he was not uh, involved with the program. Let me see what else uh, that could be important, because I like to give facts, not suppositions. Uh, one of the most capable Russian UFO researchers, uh, Nikolai Subotin, uh, mentioned that in 2002 he had spoken with uh, an officer in the Russian armed forces who still had been using the so-called instruction a military form that was sent out to the armed forces in the Soviet times to fill out information in detail of uh, sightings of, uh, well, let's call it UFOs. They did not, but you know, we'll call it UFOs. So apparently there's something that's going on. Uh, even in 1994, a long time ago, I received a report that in 1994 they were still using the same instructions to research alleged sightings. I also heard that allegedly Putin wanted to reveal some information. That was about three or four years ago. Uh, But that's about it. So Putin at one point wanted to actually provide information on the subject, and then was there some reason that he changed his mind? Yeah, and again, I don't want to speculate why or what. I mean, if he does reveal it, that would be nice. Uh, Mind you guys, I am from Ukraine. And while I spent year, some years in the Soviet Union in my youth, uh, which was a completely different country, I am uh, very glad that Ukraine is a separate entity today, a separate independent state, and uh, Russia is a different country. It's got its own you know, problems and uh, directions, and uh, I'm glad that at least some UFO research goes on, and uh, that people, researchers do have some ability to study uh, the subject, which is very difficult. They're not oligarchs. They don't have a lot of money. And uh, you got to give it to them that uh, they still go ahead and spend their own resources, take their own time, and do pursue research of UFOs, which is, which is very significant because Russia, as we will find out during our conversation here, is a huge country that has tremendous land mass. I would say that many areas of that land mass is still is still not researched completely. And uh, there are many faraway places, uh, very far to reach, uh, very hard to reach places. Roads are not, you know, well maintained, and there, are, just, there isn't many roads at all available. So all that hinders research, and yet those guys still go ahead and they do conduct research. People like Chernobyl, 
and uh, Subotin and Gerstein. They do much more than, I would say, Chinese or American UFO researchers. On the PowerCast, we're talking to Paul Stonehill. He's co-author of Mysterious Skies, Soviet UFO Phenomenon. He is a paranormal investigator. And right now we're covering Soviet UFOs. Now, is there a line of demarcation with how the subject was treated before the Soviet Empire fell? Did they... The government tried to suppress this at that time? Uh, my answer will not, will not be simple. First of all, it was a totalitarian government that had tremendous resources at its disposal. Even if they never they would not use them properly sometimes, they still had funding. I would say not unlimited, but quite, quite large funding for research that they found to be of interest to them. And this was, of course, different from the previous regime, uh, Russia under the czars, and different from today's regime, Russia in, in shambles, basically relying on oil to, to, to bring itself up. The Soviet Union was a different place. There was control, not always total control, but quite enough to make sure that information that was not approved would not come out. And I still have to tell you, like bamboo shoots breaking through the asphalt or concrete, that's how independent UFO research would break through the wall of secrecy. And, you know, sometimes it achieved dramatic results, like in 1968, when a group of Soviet military officers, high-ranking military officers, and civilian researchers found enough support to gain a foothold in uh, one of the facilities, so-called uh, public relations, let's say, called facilities in the Soviet Union, and establish uh, as, you know, a place where scientists and military would exchange information, meet, and it was approved initially by, by the Soviets, by the government, to the point that they had an, a, a chance to speak, to have some time national television and appeal to the masses, asking them to send in reports about UFOs. Uh, Soviet people, you know, were quite educated, and uh, they had seen a lot of strange objects in the sky, most of them most likely military, as uh, has been proven, but not all. So letters would just stream to the addresses provided, and it was a very interesting time. But it ended soon because there was a blow, and it was suppressed, and uh, other, let's say, forces within the military uh, crushed, crushed it. Within, and there wasn't anything dramatic, nobody was killed, but this was ended. And what's interesting, that at every time that such liberties with UFO research were crushed, I'll use that term, in the Soviet Union, books by American debunkers would come out, like in 1960, Donald Manzel's book would come out, a few other debunkers were quite liked in the Soviet Union and their articles would come out. And what we found out, and, and, and people will when they read this book, you see, you see a lot of patterns, a very close cooperation in, in, in certain areas between the American government and the Soviet government, be it, for example, the Phobos space program or in, in some other areas. And I, I think that during the, during the um, times of trouble, let's say, when, when Gorbachev had the country in his hands and uh, his programs basically ended in, in the 
disintegration of the Soviet Union, I believe a lot of information was purchased or sold or stolen or gained some other way from the Soviet Union on UFOs. When Yeltsin... Now, let me ask you a question here. You're saying stolen. Do you mean that people purloined this information or it was sold in the black market for price like to some other people? Market. Yeah, almost like a black market. Maybe some of the military officials found a way to supplement, uh, you know, very meager money that they had uh, during the perestroika time. Uh, but, for example, I was always interested as to what had happened to the to the files that Stalin had on Roswell incident, because in 1994, I believe, there was an official uh, reply uh, to an inquiry by uh, Soviet, a Russian ufologist uh, from the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of the Interior. I asked, you know, what, what happened to the files? And they said, well, we looked, and there are no such files on hand. So <laughs> that always ends up that way, yes, indeed. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Iron and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, I gotta pause for a second here. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney's taking the night off because he has to nurse a cold. So we have our friend Jeff Ritzman serving as guest co-host, and we're talking to Paul Stonehill. He's a paranormal investigator specializing in Russian, as they say, forty in events, and he's the co-author of a book called Mysterious Sky: Soviet UFO Phenomenon. And we've been talking here on the nuts and bolts of Soviet UFO investigation and how the government has been involved one way or the other. Jeff, before we proceed, I'm sure you have some questions that you want yeah, to follow up with, yeah. so go ahead. Actually, actually, a couple. Paul, I, I know back back so many years ago, you know, we saw this big proliferation of UFO data coming out of Russia as the, as the political climate over there changed radically. The, the KGB files, you know, came out about the UFO uh, stuff. And I heard the other night that essentially the Russian UFO, you know, evidence that, that we've had such, you know, fairly good access to as far as I can tell is starting to go back the other way. Can you tell me anything about that? I mean, is that is it is it starting to close up again, you know, with the with the political climate changing again? Here's my take on it. First of all, in the book itself, I provide email and other addresses and contacts 
for Russian ufologists. If you, you know, if you read Russian as an example, you can, and, and some of them speak English, you can gain quite a lot of information just going on website. For example, I'm, I'm very, I'm very glad that the so-called Setka materials, that's the, that the secret program that they had had for 13 years, uh, UFO research. Those documents, some of them are available, of course, not all. But enough to to make your hair stand up, so to say. Right. Now, as far as the um, nobody knows what, what what happened to to to, to the files. I'm I'm sure they're locked away. I'm, based on my research and articles published in Fate and some other magazines, and not just about UFOs. I can see that, of course, there is less information coming out. It's just that the um, again the the uh, you know uncertain period of Yeltsin rule has ended. And Russia, you know, whether they, they, they will go complete secrecy way or not, Russia is keeping uh, its files intact and not available. And yet, no one has punished any UFO researchers. They do go ahead and they try to study certain uh, phenomena, anything available. And, uh, you know, not long ago, I sent information to a number of uh, people, for example, on, on something that I uh, saw in a Russian newspaper uh, about the so-called so UFO uh, in uh, northwest Russia. And this was public, published uh, officially, which, which you, can, you, know, you have to take into the, uh, account. Kaliningrad area, there is the, uh, one of the most powerful Russian naval bases. And you know, what was it? Maybe a weapon research program? And yet they let, let information like that publish, be published. So I don't, I don't want to tie it to politics. And in my, in my opinion, they just found out that uh, this information is, uh, has a state uh, secrecy stamp all over it, and they want to control it. Right. Well, I'm wondering, you know, moreover than that, one of the biggest things that I remember hearing about in Russia that really interested me more than anything else was the M Triangle. And uh, I know that's... Uh, is that's east of Moscow, I think. It, it's in Siberia. The M triangle. M triangle. Um, you know what? I I've written about it in the book too. I I give pro and con, but I know many Russian ufologists. One of them, unfortunately, is not alive anymore. Who laughed and nonstop when you know when, when they they read the story. I consider this to be a hoax and a fake, and I'm not the only one. However, wow. I urge you to read this story in the book because again I give pro and cons and I. And I uh, present people who have been there, uh, reports uh, of what had taken place. There are many more interesting areas. And again, you, 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 know, you, you will see it, even as we speak today. The Kola Peninsula, the uh, Yakutia area, the Far East, uh, you know, many areas in Siberia, fascinating areas. So no one, really? is, okay. uh, you know, no one is stopping information about the M Triangle. But uh, the active researchers went to check it out and there's nothing to it really okay okay because i remember uh back maybe i think it was 10 years ago i think a fox crew went out there and they they detailed some really unbelievable stuff where guys were you know chased into the woods by some sort of like translucent balls that burned them there was all sort i think there was a guy if i can remember his name that was um and a, a Mercator, pa Pavel Mukartov. Muk well, I, I, I believe he was a failed cosmonaut who wanted right. to make a theme. But, okay, my personal opinion based on what the Russian researchers found out, it's right. a fake. But I don't like to insert my personal opinion into some. That's why I, I, I try to give as many facts 
as possible. It's about 500 pages, and you will see that we cover it from all sides. When there are stories of obvious hoaxes, such as the Orjanikidze object, when they allegedly shot something down in 1983 over the Caucasus Mountain area, and it turned out to be a fake. So, wow. you know, we present, yes, and even there are photographs of that. Uh, but, you know, there are, again, there are so many interesting cases you will see. And I, I, I still see that research goes on and will go on. Now, quickly, some will never get to some of the facts that have been uncovered, even in modern times. For example, allegedly, the Ukrainian Air Force has uh, kept files of the former Soviet Strategic Air Force on UFO sightings, some of the best the Soviets ever got. And the Ukrainians have kept it and told the Russians, now this information goes back to about 2001, 2000, yeah, that, you know, if you don't supply gas, you will not, on our conditions, natural gas, you will not get back those files because these Russians, modern Russians, very much wanted to get their hands on that. I have not heard anything since then. So it might be that uh, it was bartered. There might have been some kind of an exchange. In, in Ukraine, we have a very active UFO research center and also some you know, smaller organizations that do keep an eye on UFO developments. And the Ukrainian Air Force quite openly is interested in UFO research. What would you say, in your opinion, is one of the best cases, and if you could detail it just briefly for us, like what is one of the best cases that you personally have investigated and found to be a, a legitimate unknown? Paul, I'll tell you what, let's make this a cliffhanger. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or a question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Biedney is taking the evening off to nurse a cold. We have as our guest co-host Jeff Ritzman, who is a frequent guest on the show. We're talking to Paul Stonehill. He's a paranormal investigator. He's the co-author of the book called Mysterious Sky, subtitled Soviet UFO Phenomenon. And Jeff asked Paul for a very compelling case history. So let's hear it, Paul. There are so many. You can't. I think the best and the historical and one of the most interesting cases is the uh, is the Tunguska phenomena itself, mm -hmm. when something blew over or it imploded or exploded or you name it over the Tunguska almost 100 years ago in Siberia. Mm -hmm. It's it's a phenomenal case because whatever happened over the Taiga area had affected Earth itself and attracted a number of very interesting expeditions to the area. Now, the explosion was, uh, I think, equal to 40 megatons of a nuclear explosion and uh, had biological effects and others all on the taiga. But no remnants were ever found, and hundreds of theories came out and so forth. Some of the interesting ones had to do because, uh, with two objects, or maybe more, exploding over the taiga and creating this effect. 
Now, Stalin was very much interested in this, to the point that Beria, his secret police chief, sent a special expedition in 1949 to study, because they wanted to know, had there been a nuclear explosion? Very capable military scientists were sent to the area, collected information, did their research, reports, and we don't know what happened to the files. There were expeditions back in the Tsarist times to the area that we don't know much about. Official expeditions began in, began in 1941. That's just one of the cases. In the modern Soviet times, I am fascinated with a very interesting episode called the Manchigorsk object, when uh, the uh, Soviets found a small shuttle-like object in their disposal, not far from one of their military bases, and they hauled it away and uh, placed it in Manchigorsk, studied it very in intensely, and uh, were able to get inside this object, try to break something off because they couldn't. They actually did some of the piece of equipment, but it's not something that they would produce. Now, again, this was a small, it was as built for, as if built for dwarfs. And um, they had it in their, in their possession for a while. I believe Mr. Gorbachev made a special trip to the area, changing his itinerary. And then this object simply disappeared. We collected a lot of information because Philip had also excellent contacts and was respected in the former Soviet Union. We have information on so-called underwater, un unidentified submersible objects, and, uh, w which is our pride, and a huge chapter on just military encounters. I find, personally, I found very interesting patterns and stories about so-called sinister dirigibles or blimps, blimp-like objects over Russia going, you know, starting in, I would say, 1915, but especially from, I would say, from 1950s on. And what's important are the testimonies of qualified witnesses, not somebody from, you know, who is a village cow maid who sees something in the sky. Not to put her down, but you got scientists. For example, there was a somebody in 1953, a former inmate of Soviet concentration camp, himself a scientist, and a lecturer of military, military institutes, who had observed this sinister, unusual, huge cigar-shaped objects that had separated into smaller pieces, and the horrible effect it had on the health of he, of, of himself and other biological beings in the area. And allegedly, the Soviets actually tried to shoot it down in 1953. This was right after Stalin's death. Now, I have a report uh, that came from Russia, from the Soviet Union, for the chief of naval counterintelligence of the Pacific Fleet, and we give his name, to, and how he said that such similar object was sighted over faraway objects of the Pacific Ocean. And then we also go into, for example, 1940s during the battlefields when Russians were fighting Nazis and what they had observed, same object. And then, for example, and, and I'm just telling you one of many cases, but patterns. I'll, I'll give you a date, August 17, 1954, 8.12 a.m. This is from a military report, an unusual object sighted by anti-aircraft unit at very close to the Chinese border. Same object, very similar. Then we give other dates and very interesting areas like the Persian, Russian, uh, Soviet Persian border, not far from Iraq, very hot area because of the Afghan war at the time, similar objects sighted. And this is what we like, what we wanted to do, present qualified, credible 
testimonies by trained observers like astronomers, cosmonauts, KGB people. Uh, you know, we have KGB reports too, although KGB by no means was the primary organization to collect information on UFOs. And when people get into our chronology of Soviet UFO research and extensive discussions of, the, of that program that I mentioned earlier, you will see what they were after. And please understand that we don't have all the information, yeah. but even our information will make people wonder. What about hard evidence in terms of radar reports, in terms of photographs, videotapes, things like that? Well, the book has photographs that we were found available, and many of them, and a lot of information came from St. Petersburg, from a very capable man by the name of Mikhail Gerstein, who has done tremendous research, but he's not the only one. Colonel Kolchin, and a few other names. I don't want to go through names. It's just, uh, uh, you know, what we were able to obtain, we have. In terms of radio reports, uh, if something tangible to hold in your hands, I, I know there is a black market for that, but it, it's not, I am not the person to ask. I do know that whenever, I, sometimes when I publish articles in fake magazine about, for example, Soviet, uh, you know, so-called psi weapons research, I would get offers and letters saying, well, can you sell it to me? I don't have this. Uh, if those who are interested in to contact the Russian researchers, they can uh, write to me. I know of uh, the, uh, for example, a book, one of the books that you cannot get today for covering parts of the so-called Sift Expedition of 1981 when Soviet cosmonauts allegedly cited something very unusual. So you can get objects. Actual remnants, I don't think that you, any one of us would have. It's a state secret, and it's something that the Soviets and the Russians guard, oh just boy. like the Americans oh do. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bienney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
during the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. David's taking the night off to nurse a cold, and he'll be back with us next week. Meantime, we have, as our guest co-host, Jeff Ritzman, paranormal investigator who has definitely entertained us with lots of interesting information. Since in the year the show has been on, we're talking to Paul Stonehill. He is the co-author of Mysterious Sky, subtitled Soviet UFO Phenomenon. Jeff, you want to pursue this further with him? Yeah, Paul, there was a um, another thing that I remember hearing a lot about that I'd like to ask you about, which is uh, Hill 611. Uh, excellent, excellent that you did. Yeah, um, known as the Russian Roswell, if I'm thinking of the right one. And I remember um, Gene was asking you something about the hard evidence being found or, or, or being had. And if I'm remembering right, there was some kind of a mesh material that had a some sort of previously unknown aluminum alloy in it that the Academy of Sciences did some work with over okay. there. And whatever happen with that kind of stuff? Well, first of all, guys, what I can do is, uh, actually, I wanted to send it a UFO update, and I will, but uh, I, I will copy you, too. And the most interesting update that uh, came from the guy, from the gentleman who had um, researched this Hill 611 phenomena, it, it happened in Dalnigorsk. It's a small settlement in the Russian uh, Far East. Actually, it happened the, during the Soviet times. There are two main explanations. You know, there, there are some, but two main explanations as to what it might have been. One of them presented by very well-respected ufologist and the author of the first Russian UFO studies textbook. He believes this was nothing but a special Soviet test satellite that... Mm was uh you know that was being tested and fell down and he said we have such technology in our hands there was also an explanation that this might have been a piece of the challenger shuttle which which broke apart just like a day before you gotta know that too now taking that aside the two explanations they did find something very unusual and uh, you know let's start in the beginning this incident took place in 86 on january 29 it was a sphere very unusual sphere reddish sphere that flew into the town from the southeast direction crossed the town and, and it crashed into the so-called Izviskova mountain uh, they also call it uh, hill hill 611 it, it has to do with its size it the object it, it was a it had a very noiseless flight it was flying parallel to the ground and its diameter according to Dujilne. and by the way those who want to obtain his original report i can put you through to russian researchers not copies original stuff this was about three meters in diameter it was a very it was a almost perfect round shape no projections no cavities and it looked like you know imagine a burning stainless steel object that's how it looked like the speed was about 15 meters per hour when it got to that hill it slowly ascended and then descended well, went down and every time it would would rise up the glow would heat up intensify which might explain its natural earth origin maybe not but when it finally fell down it was like a rock and it burned for about an hour so there was an expedition to the site uh, sent by the russian academy of sciences and they had taken samples I think there is somebody who still has a, a piece of the 
tree stump that was burned, and actually not burned, but liquefied like like glass. To make it the short, you know, long story short, it was a very interesting object. And what they found out, and then they studied like uh, pieces of silvery metal, mesh metal, some pieces of that look like solidified balls. They studied these tiny nets and so forth in the laboratories, and it's true that it was said that the technology to produce such materials was not yet available on Earth. And some of the top Soviet uh, institutes had studied it, and we present actual metallurgical explanation. We go to very detailed scientific explanation. I gotta tell you that these nets have confused many researchers, because it, it, it was impossible to understand their structure and nature of the formation. So, you know, we, for example, there is a, an opinion of one of the top experts on carbon at the Chemistry Institute of the Far Eastern Academy of USSR. He just doesn't have any idea what it was. It resembles glass carbon, but conditions leading to such formation are still unknown to our science, and so forth. So, to me, it's a very unusual case. But you got to understand something else, which is very important. Sometime later, objects, other UFOs were sighted over the area, and they flew to the area. What happened in November was that I think 32 objects flew to that area and hovered over over the Far East. Three of them definitely came to height 611. And again, cigar, one of them was that gigantic cigar-shaped object. It was, it was cited by military and by some, um, you know, local, you know, manager of a certain quarry. And, and he says he knows theory and practice of flight, but he could not explain how such a gigantic object could fly, fly noiselessly without any winds or engines. I'm talking about a wave of UFOs that came later, again, to the Dalnogorsk area. And military were quite interested, even in the, in the modern times, and they worked with ufologists. It's, it's a fascinating case, but you know what? It's not the only one. And I, I, as soon as I locate that story, I read it three days ago, new, new, new interview with Vujilny, where he confirms the unusual properties of the object. I will send it to you too. It's in Russian. I, I did not have time to translate it yet. I will, so hopefully in the future, or somebody else will. But as you can see, interest still, still exists. Not enough. I got to tell you that uh, Far Eastern, uh, there are people in, in Japan, Korea, and China very much interested in this case. And the black market was selling pieces, you know, small fragments of recovered objects. Can you imagine for, I think it was like $500 a gram about four or five years ago. What's interesting guys, uh, the CIA also kept an eye on Soviet UFOs and as I'm sure they kept on uh, developments here and some of the files they declassified contain fascinating information and one of them had to do with a meeting. There was a report of a meeting between Russian and Chinese ufologists, I would say Soviet ufologists at the time, in the Far East, actually in Dalmogorsk, I would say back in 1990, just, you know, a year before the Soviet Union was no more, which is, good. I mean, you know, the more cooperation there is in the world, the better it would be for everyone. But this Dalmogorsk case, case definitely interests more than just, just black market profiteers. That's just one of the cases. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds to me like Russia has just as many, as if not more, than we've had in the U.S. that 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 we get to look at. And and in fact, I mean, you know, Gene, how many <laughs> how many cases do you know that came around in the United States where where they actually have metal still from this thing? You know, not well, that goes lot. even back to Maury Island, of course, where they allegedly yeah. d- recovered materials from the case, but then those materials were supposedly stolen by government agents. Exactly. I, that was yeah, I mean, one of the craziest stories ever to occur, and that goes back to 1947 period. I oh, mean, wait, it, you, you will see. Look at all the cases in the United States and some other areas, and compare, compare it to, to similar incidents in the Soviet Union. And then you find out, 19, you find some years were very, very, 1953, 1982, some other, I, I mean, you see patterns, and I, I urge people to compare what happened. For example, in 1960, there was a case in Argentina of gigantic underwater unidentified objects that were cornered in one of the areas, you know, in the Argentina's uh, uh, waters, and they tried to, to bomb it out, to get it out, and finally the objects left, huge submarines. Khrushchev was quite interested and uh, wanted to find out what's going on. Well, 1960 was a very interesting year in the Soviet Union as well. And I, I'm sure maybe in China or France as well. But you start seeing patterns. And that's why I'm, I'm surprised that, you know, you have efforts of ufologists here, you have in other countries, but it's very difficult to have one unified database well, especially yeah, if nature. critical evidence here especially if critical evidence is being acquired in the black market and maybe collectors have this stuff all over the asian part of the world that's really got to be screwy let me tell you that we're going to break briefly now and then return with our interview of paul stonehill co-author of mysterious sky soviet ufo phenomenon on part two of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietnik. This is part two of our session with Paul Stonehill. He's the co-author of Mysterious Sky, Soviet UFO Phenomenon, and Paul is a paranormal investigator, and he specialized in a lot of things that have gone on in Russia and David Bietney is not with us on the PowerCast this evening. He's nursing a bad cold, and he's getting better. We know that, and he'll be back next week. So we have with us Jeff Ritzman, also a paranormal investigator who's been a frequent guest on the PowerCast, and Jeff serves as our guest co-host. Jeff, you want to pick up on this? Yeah, another thing I wanted to ask Paul about was the... You know, over here in the States, it's in, and I know across the world to a certain degree, but it, it seems to me to be predominantly in the United States, is the whole experiencer or abduction or whatever you want to call it, experiences that people have. And I noticed that from what I've read, the Russian viewpoint on that whole scenario is a lot different, especially in the way that the beings tend to appear and what they look like. It seems like over in this country, a lot of people equate aliens to the greys or what have you what is the russian outlook i mean do you get reports of these quote-unquote gray style beings or do you get something vastly different from that well uh there are two two, uh, two things first of all before the fall of the soviet union uh, russia was uh, basically a secluded area where you know you didn't have uh american or, or western reports of ufos uh, appear in, in, in the media 
And uh, whatever happened there, whatever reports they had were so-called homegrown. You know, they would not read uh, tabloid media. So they did not have cultural references to something that they didn't see. Nowadays, Russia is flooded with, uh, you know, information and books and so forth of all kinds, which is good and in some t sometimes bad in, in the terms that, uh, in the sense that they psychologically acquire experiences that they did not have before, and they say, well, somebody saw Grace, I saw them too. Right, and cultural contamination, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, first of all, about uh, so-called abductions, uh, if we listen to Vladimir Zhaza, who is one of the, you know, so the fathers of Soviet ufology, and, well, and a very active and brave person, and I wish him many long years, he's, he's aged now, but he presented information that uh, up to 5,000 people would be abducted in the former Soviet Union per year. So because of some other information that he had presented before, I tend to believe him. I, I doubt some, sometimes some of the presentations that he makes, but not, not such data. And uh, he investigated it too. Uh, so this is very interesting. Of course, most of the people who are abducted never come back, and we don't know whether some were abducted or were killed during the murky times of Russia, I would say between 1991 and 2000, when there wasn't much control and there was a lot of crime. So some people, you know, you, you, you have to understand, we can't say that abductions are ET or alien-created, all of them. And still, you wanted to know descriptions. Well, I would say that there, there, there is a prevalence of so-called gigantic beings cited. And it's yes. very interesting because, you know, whether again, we, we try to go back to serious reports, whether presented by military or KGB or, uh, you know, trained observers, and you see quite a lot of that. And so-called giants, uh, beings more than, I would say, over three and a half meters tall, uh, let's say eight to ten feet tall, you, you, you have a lot of that in, in, in the cases presented. But at the same time, like the Montegorsk object, you have this shuttle-like object, and I believe we have a picture of it, too, not a picture, but a drawing made by the military officers, which was made by very small people. But there is an interesting case from 1951 from Mongolia, itself a fascinating area, where a military doctor who had in 1951, what, what would they know under Stalin? Nothing. Nothing that was taking place in the West. They reported, you know, a mushroom-like uh, object that's, um, I believe, landed in Mongolia, not far away from the Soviet expedition, and beings, very thin beings with projectile projections in, in the middle of their body. And then we go to the area like Yakutia, that's a very far away area in Taiga, and ancient reports from the area and current of strange embedded objects in the tundra and the effect they had radioactive on the population and then going to legends and what's interesting are reports that are not so old i think maybe going to the beginning of the century last century and middle of last century of beings that were dark and that look like sticks uh, dressed in silvery costume face suits for example it's right. very interesting so Yes, you will see a lot of different reports, you know, as compared to American, uh, but I'm not sure if we start comparing to the Chinese reports, how different they would be. Well, you are mentioning situations here where people were abducted and never returned. Now, 
obviously we've heard about all the cases in the U.S. involving the Bermuda Triangle where people allegedly disappear. Now, is this something similar to that? Yes, yes. There are you know people and objects that would disappear, but there is an area not far away from the from Japan and and for example the Soviet waters where ships disappear and and and, and never are found. It's it's interesting, but I find it to be hearsay, maybe because you don't have solid proof. When like in the in, in the in the chapter on um, secrets of Russian seas, underwater secrets. You know, we try to give details that of, of actual something that was cited and seen. And when we present information, for example, about a 1965 case when a Soviet submarine was not far from the American waters, and this, there was this gigantic cigar-shaped UFO over it, and they give a detailed description. This is very, you know, this is interesting, and this is more or less a confirmation. And uh, you don't, it's not something that disappeared that you only talk that you can give a lot of explanations to. It's something else. I'm trying to, to phrase it in a way that I like concrete evidence. Concrete evidence is, for example, there is a lake in, in, in Central Asia. And in the, in the, in, in, during the Cold War and the SDI program, the Soviets spared no money to put a military unit that would spy on American satellites. And because they had, you know, best of the best equipment, they could also see a few other things. And at this lake, which is a natural disaster about to happen, if there's a strong earthquake, half of Afghanistan could be washed out if all this water goes down the mountain and a few other areas in Central Asia. That lake had a number of UFOs coming in and out from the lake waters. And because the Soviet, despite an American satellites, they had equipment, they could see what was going on, and they recorded it. So this, is, to me, is more... How can I say? It's more concrete, more interesting than just stories of disappearances. But guys, at the same time, we put down as much information as possible. So people make up their own mind. Even historically, we have a case from one of the old Russian manuscripts of a boy. And that manuscript is kept in a church in Russia and, you know, in the mu- and in the museum. You, you, you can see that. A boy who was taken up to the sky by a some intelligent being, and uh, the boy was shown many wonders around the, around the celestial sky and was, was given a lot of instruction as to the sciences and so forth, and he was back, brought back to Earth. So even such stories make it to our book. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer 
an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Right now, click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Eilert and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. David's taking the night off to nurse a cold. Our guest co-host is paranormal investigator Jeff Ritzman, who has been a frequent guest on the show. Paul Stonehill, our guest this evening, is co-author of Mysterious Sky, subtitled Soviet UFO Phenomenon. Now, back in World War II here in the U.S., we heard of cases of so-called Foo Fighters, which were reported in the European mm-hmm. theater of the war. And some people felt, or at least at the time, they may have been weapons from the Nazis. No one knew what they were. Now, going back into the Soviet history of UFO cases, paranormal instances, etc., do you have anything comparable to the Foo Fighters? Absolutely. We, there's quite a lot of information. First of all, separately, we go through the history of uh, the so-called Nazi UFOs and their research, which was, you know, they were trying to create a, a social, social-like uh, object, and they, they had some achievements, but it's separate. Many years ago, I received interesting information from Colonel Officer, who was one of the Soviet top guns, and um, he uh, was able to immigrate to Israel, and I hope he's still alive. We even have to do with his photograph. He was a very keen observer who sighted UFOs over Poland in 1944, and he started collecting information. But we also have other information. If you remember, I told you about this black, I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, this gigantic sinister dirt, blimp-like objects. One of the interesting cases was actually from uh, the 1940s, given by uh, Colonel Kowalchuk. Uh, during the World War II, a huge blimp-like object, about 150 meters in long, appeared over the military airfield where they were stationed, and it had no gondola. It moved at the altitude of 500 meters. They thought it was a Nazi object, so they started shooting at it, but you know, they couldn't do anything. So this one case. There are other cases. We don't have too much information from, let's say, the Civil War, one interesting case. But from about 1920s on, when the KGB of the time became involved in paranormal research and uh, had special facilities to study it and expeditions and so forth, some, some information came out. During the World War II, there are, I think there are, we have about three or four very interesting reports. Soviets had observed UFOs over their battlefields. They did not know what, what they were. They tried to shoot them down in some cases. They could not. So they thought maybe it's German weapon. 
the Germans, Nazis, thought the same because we have a small report from the so-called Blue Division, uh, volunteers who were fighting on their side against the Soviets. What they were, nobody knows. And each side thought it probably was the other side's <laughs> weapons of some sort, you know, here and there that we always hear about. I mean, that kind of leads me to the other thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, in the, in the U.S. we've had uh, UFOs slated over fairly sensitive, you know, military defense areas. And I know that in Russia, that I can that I can remember hearing about in particular was that, and maybe there's more than one, and I just don't know about it, that there was uh, a UFO sighted over a, a missile range in Russia. Uh, I beg your pardon, Ukraine. In the Ukraine. Soviet Ukraine. Okay. And what what was the, as I remember, it was something about that the, were the controls actually reprogrammed in, in the missile range? Was there, there was some kind of interaction or changes made as a result of this sighting over the range. Yeah, Moscow okay. lost control for a while, and and I, I believe the sequence started for the uh, missile to be to be launched in the United States. I believe for uh, for uh, some period of time, uh, definitely 15 seconds. That that was for sure, but right. more. They lost f- full control. Now, 1982 is a fascinating year. This is the same year where in the lakes of the Soviet Union they sighted gigantic swimmers. We go back to the so-called giants. Who was who were they? Soviet military observers. They were scared to the point that an order came down to the uh, you know to to different military areas and and armed forces not to try to capture the so-called swimmers because people lost their lives trying to do that. In 1982, uh-huh. there were other cases. I also, we also, there's also information from this Setka secret program of going back to 1982 of a similar being sighted by military in a very sensitive area called Borisovglebsk, not far from Voronish. There was a UFO, it exploded. Apparently, it exploded, we're not sure, and a being was sighted running away from the area. And same year, not far away, not, not, not that long, you know, long thereafter, this is what happened. 1982, an almost start of, of, God forbid, nuclear war. Then sightings of the so-called swimmers. And then this sighting from, you know, and this is, again, dates, names from that military program, all available. We have available from that military research program. A few other cases in 1982. This was a very interesting year. Why? You know what what I found interesting is that from 1970s, I would say from mid-1970s to 1979, there was a very close cooperation in many areas between the Soviet Union and, and the United States. And then from, you know, like a thunder in the sky, this decision to invade Afghanistan by the Soviets, which no one knows even today who gave the official order to go ahead. This broke their relationship, and whatever detente was in existence ended. And I believe that whatever cooperation they had at the time ended as well in the UFO sphere. So this is in itself it needs to be studied as well. I just don't have concrete evidence or time to do it. But when you get areas of cooperation like later 1989, uh, Phobos case, uh, when, when two Soviet space probes to study Martian moonlets were sent, uh, you know, on an expedition, this was a joint West European, American, and to an extent 
Soviet scientific achievement. And it was destroyed when, when you know when the when the probes were on their way to Mars. What, what are, and then 1989. Then two years later, the Soviet Union stopped. Well, it was no more. The, the perestroika ended. The tant ended to an extent, and there was no more cooperation. It seems like every time there is close cooperation between nations, something happens. Now wait a minute. I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. David is nursing a cold this evening. Our special guest co-host is Jeff Ritzman. And we're talking to paranormal investigator Paul Stonehill. He is the co-author of Mysterious Sky, subtitled Soviet UFO Phenomenon. Okay, now I want to ask you this, and this is something which becomes obvious, and that is it seems that the Americans and the Soviets are cooperating in UFO investigation, whatever, and something happens. Now, are you saying something? Something sinister is causing this to happen? I don't, I, uh, maybe it's just a coincidence. I prefer to be more positive and to have a shiny outlook on life, but some things are hard to explain, and it may be up to future researchers to find out, because you see, gentlemen, the files, most of the files are still closed, and just seeing small openings in the files make, you know, makes uh, people excited about information that comes out. But I see patterns, and this is one of the patterns that comes out from the book. The book is full of information. Okay, but we we're talking here, yeah, obviously yeah. we certainly have a link to the book over at theparacast.com so people can learn more about it and order it if they want to. And mm-hmm. we want to certainly cover a lot of the areas here. But now, that's another question, too, which is raised here. The Soviets and the Americans, what about collusion with regard to UFO mm-hmm. secrecy? Do you think that they talk to each other about things like that or did in the past? I do think so. And if we go back to 1986, when Reagan mentioned something and Gorbachev mentioned something, and it's, it's fascinating how they started, sometimes they think they're human beings after all, and information came out. Gorbachev admitted, yes, they had UFO research. Reagan said that, you know, uh, there may be alien uh, threat, and if we were united, we could defeat it. That's very interesting, but, you know, you look short answer. Personally, I believe there's quite interesting exchange of information between the two. How can I prove it? No. Can, is there enough information, for example, in our research to show that, uh, that the Soviets were interested in, in uh, American research and Americans in the Soviet research? 100%. That goes back to, you know, that bears the question that, that has to be mm-hmm. asked here is that not so long ago, I believe, I can't remember if it was the CIA or who it was, openly admitted uh, in documentation that was released that they had used Use the UFO enigma as more or less a cover-up for their secret projects. And I have to wonder, I mean, hearing, you know, like you say, the similarities in in the conversations that the U.S. may have had with Russia and vice versa, you have to wonder if, if some of these reports are not simply using the UFO excuse, as, the, as some will call it, to, to basically hide their top-secret projects. I mean, how many do you think are actually just that? I'll tell you. I would say I- According to the Soviet program, 
you know, to, to, to research UFOs, military program, 20%, and I w- and four or five cases they could, they just could not explain at all, no matter how much they tried. One of these cases was so interesting that Andropov actually had it on his table and, and he was interested in. That's according to the Sietka program. According to the Soviet Academy of Science, 5% cannot be explained. You can, and they don't say, of course, it's extraterrestrials or anything else, and no one no. Right. What exactly. they say, and I, I, know, I know, by no means, please, I, you know, we just don't know who they are or what they are. They believe, they would say, well, that's physical forces still unknown to us. Right. And, you know, but I do know that uh, the, the intensive research conducted by the Sietka program, you know, let's say military slash uh, academic, academic program, Right. They found ca- so many fascinating cases, and from the glimpse of uh, 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 at some of them, you can see their fascination with this. And you know what makes uh, uh, what, what can make me angry and a few other people I know in Russia and Ukraine is that back in 1980s we had proof that UFOs as such exist. We don't know what they are. But they existed and based on trained observations. Because, please realize, in 1979, an official order, so-called instruction, came to all branches of the Soviet armed forces. Send information on, on UFOs, that's called the UFOs, to such and such institute. There were two institutes that uh, had to study this phenomenon, the, the, the reports. And Soviet soldiers and seamen and sailors and uh, airmen they send all this information in because they have to. And it's an incredible wealth of information. And by the way, we still don't know where most of it is. By the way, while we were talking, you emailed to me hmm? a link to a website in Russian, which I, of course, cannot read, hmm? although I have ancestors who were born in Russia. And that is, can you tell me what that is about? What is it that you sent to me? Well, this is what you asked me about about the Dalnigors case. Mr. Uh, this is Dujilmis. Uh, Information. He was the, uh, the uh, uh, researcher who went to this site and investigated. And this is the so-called Hill 611. And he is basically he is adding more information, saying that you know confirmation that the object was not made on this earth. Let's put it down this way. Okay, so I get the impression from you then that you feel that UFOs are extraterrestrial. No, no. Okay. I, I, I will, I, no, not for me. I want to make sure that, you for my personal opinion, we should study our oceans much more closer than we have, except it's more difficult to research our oceans than, than to research the moon. Uh, it's, it's not my thing. It's uh, some of the scientists that... Okay, well, we it. had a guest on our show a few months back, Mac Tonys, who had a theory called crypto-terrestrial UFOs. And what he's talking about here is that the UFO phenomenon is basically generated by another race that coexists with ours. But, of course... They're either in caves or in the oceans. We don't see them. So that the UFOs come from here. What do you think about that? I think that there is definitely something on Earth that may might have been here long before us and uh, is here with us. I'll give you an example. Ants are very intelligent creatures, absolutely intelligent. And they have their own civilization, very complex, very interesting civilization. And us. We know about each other. We know maybe more about them superficially than they do about us. We coexist on one planet. Do we infringe upon one upon another in a way, but still, they really don't care about us until we start destroying them? 
but we haven't to the point that you know they're gone from the planet and we don't really care about them except you know without their existence if, if they did not exist we might not have because of the role they, they have but that's it they're two intelligent beings in a way different kind of intelligence coexist on one planet but there are other creatures as well dolphins we don't know that much about i i know because i know the soviets were, were studying them very intensively as well that's another intelligence but that's at least we can observe each other we cannot observe more intelligent more advanced beings that maybe most likely do not abide by our physical laws if you look at ufo re reports you know I, I can go by by soviet russian cases when the ufo when a ufo flies and stops at incredible speed and then uh, breaks into many different pieces that come together later on and changes shapes and so forth we cannot do it our technology cannot perform such actions they do For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. David's off to nurse a cold, and he'll be back next week. And our guest co-host this week is Jeff Ritzman, a paranormal investigator. And we have another paranormal investigator joining us, Paul Stonehill. He's author of Mysterious Sky, subtitled Soviet UFO Phenomenon, along with Philip Mantle. And I wanted to ask you, before we progress into more of these case histories and theories, how did you get caught up in the UFO enigma? Well, uh, first of all, when I was, uh, I, I've always liked this, uh, this not not this subject, but but the research of the unknown it wasn't paranormal in the Soviet Union. You know, we were brought up in a different society. But uh, we, there were interesting publications such as Technica Maladjoji, something like Technology for the Young People, and very and you know very um, iconoclastic people were able to publish interesting research and, and, and science fiction stories and also research and ideas in that magazine. And I. Uh, I collected that from 1950s I was able to get old issues and then when I was a kid in the Soviet Union 
I, I could, I've read quite a lot about ancient astronaut theories. They had their own, you know, earlier than some people here. And also, uh, UFOs were somewhat discussed, not, not openly, but uh, some, some cases were published. Personally, I met a, somebody who was a, a pilot in the Soviet Air Force over the Arctic in 1930s, I think 1936, and he and his crew observed a UFO flying alongside their aircraft, and they had they had something like a Gatling gun, and they gun, and they opened fire, but you know, to, to nothing happened. The UFO just flew away. Uh, also, very interesting, you know, object. And so I, I, I was interested, and I tried to collect as much as I could information. And when you are too persistent, you do get things in your hands. I didn't get anything from the West, but I heard a few things. We also have black markets in the Soviet Union, and uh, you, you could get some literature. Did you ever see anything strange or unusual? Yes. In 1989, over Northridge, I and my wife actually observed a very interesting and typical UFO um, observation, a sphere fiery red sphere uh, racing across the sky. Now, you know, it's not that far away from the skunks uh, works. Maybe it was some kind of a new military technology. I'm not sure. But that's what I saw. You know, Gene, I think that we're seeing that there's a lot of, of very similar things in Russia just as there is in the U.S. And in fact, uncannily at the same kind of time frame that we're talking about now, you know, the, the aspect of time coming into it now, um, Paul, do you think that there's any chance at all? Or, or what do you feel about some people who say that this is a possibly a dimensional you mentioned that the you we should be looking closer at our oceans and i'm not sure that mm -hmm. i disagree with you with that what is your outlook on something like the dimensional theory or the time traveler thing do you see anything in the russian literature that points you in that direction maybe perhaps there well, were theories came out that it could be beings from other dimensions but uh, time travelers no no, again, in the recent years, they started talking about it, but they take, like you said, uh, cross-cultural contamination. Right. Not, I think previously, the, um, during the Soviet times, uh, especially as espoused by scientists, they believed that they had, they dealt with extraterrestrials or so-called ancient astronauts, let's put it that way. Mm, okay. Uh, and they were more, because uh, science, was was respected and and again religion was not uh, in fashion at the time and there were a lot of scientists brave uh, and, and, and you know intelligent people who wanted to find out what is it that's flying over us but they also knew that for for a craft spaceship to to get here from any nearby star if it had any intelligent life it would take an enormous amount of time and generations right. so were such objects flying using technologies unknown to us? To us, possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Well, I mean, the uh, the other side of the coin between the U.S. and and Russia. And here's here's a question that's that Gene's mm -hmm. going to smile about because it's very near to my heart. You know, in the U.S., you know, I'm sure you've looked at cases in the U.S. and we have, and Gene and David have discussed this at length on this show. We have a pretty disgusting amount of hoaxers, you know, mm -hmm. pr proliferating across the whole the whole UFO community. Do you have that kind of thing in Russia? Is it really rampant? As rampant? as it is here you know in russia is it the same do a lot of people hoax stuff and try to get away with it some and and cases like the argenikidze uh, object and i don't in the period covered for example in the book no and in, even nowadays for example i i don't believe in the m triangle and, and you will see why or in the argenikidze object but i don't think people have too much time to spend uh, creating hoaxes they are trying to survive Right. See, I just want to add something. We 
are de dealing here with two different entities, the U USA and the Soviet Union, Russia, has gone to tremendous changes in the last century. Bloody revolutions, invasions, uh, you know, changes of government, of, yeah. and, and, and a breakdown of civilizations. Tsarist Russia was different from the Soviet Union, and modern Russia is completely different from, you know, from the other two. Right. And the United States has been a stable society. You know, we, you, you've gone through changes, but evolution is the right word here. Evolution of the society, but the economy has been stable more or less. You know, you don't have uh, the federation destroyed any time recently. I'm not talking about the civil war. California becoming a separate nation, Texas becoming another separate nation. Right. And, you know, you had this in the so former Soviet Union, and also the leaders of the Soviet Union were... Were to, they wanted to know what threat is being posed by so-called UFOs. You know, why? Just like people here, just like the government here, but maybe sure. they were a little bit more you know, psychotic about this. And, and, and you know, as the, as the regimes changed, attitudes changed, and you could see it in the Soviet Union. Again, it wasn't a complete uh, closed-off society like 1984 would, would describe. It was a little bit, it was different. Mm -hmm. in, in the later years, it became more like a, you know, it, it wasn't a concentration camp. It was more like a, uh, you know, forced collective, collective farm or kindergarten, but in many ways. But you could see attitudes changing with, with freedom coming in, even under Khrushchev. Uh, he did a lot of positive changes in the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, concentration camps, many of them, most of them were closed. People received a little bit more freedom. You could read Solzhenitsyn's book, uh, at least one of them. And you could see it brought up good feelings. And Russians, if you give them an ability to, to experience freedom and to, to research, they'll do it. People wanted to find answers to questions, except some of the questions were gone because we don't know everything that happened under Stalin, and we will never know. But if we do know that Stalin himself was interested in this phenomenon, for example. And Stalin, I'll give you an example. This was totalitarian society after World War II. Russia was in ruins. And then when he meets with Churchill and, and other leaders in, in Potsdam, to, you know, thinking how to divide up Germany, he talks about the moon and how we're going to claim moon territories and you know they look at him why moon why now but <laughs> stalin was a very intelligent person in a way he was evil but intelligent and you start finding out that he was very much interested in lunar lunar research and in american ufo files we want to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the podcast send it to News at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. David's taking the night off to nurse a cold, and he'll be back next week. Meantime, our special guest co-host is Jeff Ritzman. We're talking to Paul Stonehill, paranormal investigator, co-author of Mysterious Sky, Soviet UFO Phenomenon, and the book can be found at all the usual offenders, such as Amazon Books, and we have a link to the book information over at theparacast.com. Now, Paul, you were going to start to explain something, so I'll let you do it now. It's not, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's very interesting. One of the um, top Soviet scientists, a very well-respected person and a brave person, his last name is Burdakov. He's still alive. Now, he was interested in UFOs ever since he was a young scientist, and he was given protection by some of the high-placed people, including the father of Soviet space science, um, Karolyov. Burdakov found out that in the middle 1950s, in the Soviet Union, a group of scientists, top scientists, were given an item to study and present their opinion to the Soviet government. What is this item? They studied it from many different angles, but they couldn't explain what it was. Did they say what it looked like? They did. And based on their on what they said and what they described, it's a microchip. But they didn't have microchip technology in the Soviet Union at the time. So where did they get it from? In the city I was born in, Kiev. Archaeological expeditions found in the beginning of the century and they didn't touch it. They covered it with earth. And then in 1948, under Stalin, they did touch it. They found an object, a rocket-like object, that was actually cut down into pieces, and they found out descriptions written in Sanskrit. It was a, allegedly a spaceship that was buried, got, got, who knows for how many thousands of years, in the soil of Ukraine. It was recovered, taken apart. We give names, we give dates. And something else, five years later, Yes, five years later, KGB raids an apartment in Kiev and takes out uh, information, I think it was kept in chest, doesn't matter. Books that describe in Arabic, ancient Arabic, ancient Sanskrit, Star Wars-like technologies and stories of ancient astronauts and so forth. Same, same place. Same. Was, it that some, was it something they recovered and had their hands on back in 1950s? Quite possible. Is there any paper trail to where these objects are now? Is there, is there any... Any, no, there's no clue exactly. Of course not. <laughs> uh, not no, unlike no, the no. U.S. Don't, 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 uh, you know, if, if there was, first of all, the, 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 the impact on civilization would be, uh, you know... Oh, maybe, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, can't, you can't even, you know, religious and so forth. Right. We can only give, uh, we don't want to give hearsay, but, but still, you'll find ancient Russian sightings, very interesting, Ukraine and Russia, right. and very unusual reports, but reports presented by, for example, a Dutch spy, uh, the, Soviet, uh, the Russian, sorry, Russian royal court, who had observed, you know, a very interesting aerial battle in 1716, when two clouds, you know, so-called clouds, it's, uh, appeared in the sky, and how they were fighting each other. And then you have a very interesting report of a UFO over Kremlin, the Kremlin in 1808. And now you want the uh, paper trail. For example, the 1808 case, we give the name of the uh, archives, state archives facility, uh, the page number, and the book, so you could see this. If somebody is interested, would go and see. This is the way to go. Even the rocket recovered allegedly in Kiev, we give the name of the Czech archaeologist who had done, who had done an initial so-called recovery, and he never mentioned it in his book. 
and then to give other information. So there, is, uh, there is eyewitness testimony to those then. I mean, you, you, there's actual eyewitness testimony to the recovery of this thing. Yes. There is somebody whose father was actually on the site and who was, who was doing it. But we, this is something we don't have in, in our hands. Even Burdakov's story of the microchip and his achievements, he is one of the top scientists in Russia today and was before. And I've used his research for, he sent me information and personally, I would say 10, 15 years ago, we were in contact and uh, I am glad because he was one of the, he, he is the one that brought out information about Stalin's interest in UFOs and how he, Stalin, got together people like Karolev, father of Russian space science, uh, a few other academicians and told them, here is a pile of documents we have in English, study it and tell me your opinion. Each one was given a separate room in Kremlin. They were not allowed to take this stuff home. Each one had a translator, a young woman translator, who, would, uh, who was quite efficient in English and was given the task of research and uh, presentation of results. And all of them came with the same conclusion. Yes, UFOs exist. What they are, we don't know. But such objects do not present immediate threat to the Soviet Union. That sounds what uh, the so U.S. So tells familiar. us. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, this is exactly what the U.S. government was telling us with very few changes in language. Yeah, very, very little. It sounds almost identical. I mean, it, but that doesn't excuse the fact that we, we don't know what it is, and, and we should, or we should try to find out what it is. I mean, that, that's the thing that, again, it's blowing me away that there's, there's so much information just like here. I mean, uh, you know, you, you talk about uh, the recovery of of, uh, of an object in archaeology sense is found and there are witnesses to that the the daughter of one of the archaeologists you say you know this sounds like so familiar as to you know Jesse Marcel you could draw the lines I mean it just all seems to be in the same boat that there is no I mean the reason I asked about a paper trail is actually you know we know that or we we believe that the the Roswell wreckage you know was taken to Wright Patterson you know I was wondering if there was a thing like that with with that that particular find was it taken or was it said to have been taken to a particular facility or a secret base or what have you who would you ask i mean yeah <laughs> yeah well, i mean that that becomes the problem in that i mean i mentioned earlier that you know the the u.s government did use the ufo story as more or less a cover for their for their secret projects at the same time we had documents released about that kind of thing. Whereas in yeah. Russia, that kind of thing wasn't released. And I, I have to yes, think that, you know, based what yeah. I was told, yeah. that if you came out, and, you know, if, if, they, if you said to me, well, this uh, particular craft was found by the Soviet army, say, you know, and there's documentation of that, that's not the kind of thing that, uh, you know, a Russian army officer is going to talk about, <laughs> you know, uh, back in the days of the USSR. That's not no. something that he's going to talk about. Not you know? in the back of the, the, the But in 1993, 124 pages of the KGB documents were released. And as I said, KGB was not primarily involved in, in, in UFO research. They had other issues to deal with. But... That, those are fascinating cases because you find out uh, about uh, the so-called cloud formations that you can trace to other cases and Soviet research and then a lot more. And, uh, you know, I, I, most important cases we translated and you can see. But, but again, there was the other research, the, the official research, the Setka 
Sirka means net in, in English. Uh, you know, that, whatever cases we have available are in, in themselves fascinating. And then you have independent confirmation during the early days of modern Russia, and I'm talking about after 1991, uh, even, even before in the Perestroika times, you had top military officials coming out and describing unusual cases, generals presenting testimony in newspapers and interviews, and they would say, like, you know, Colonel General Martsev, who said that there, there was a, in 1990, he said, there was a UFO sighted, a disc, 200 meters in diameter, near Moscow, and he gives details. Well, we have about four, five, six testimonies like that, and much more. Especially when, when we go into the chronology, year by year, and of course, it's not complete, but right. it's as complete you can find anywhere else. And, and, and then you have testimonies of scientists who had observed objects over uh, nuclear installations or secret facilities. The picture you get is this. Moscow was as powerless as Washington. When, <laughs> and, and, you know, from the very early days of Soviet space science research, you observed, they observed UFOs over their secret testing sites. People like Arnold, they couldn't do anything. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceship explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack, Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www www.rockoids.com Attack of the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
You were in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and, and David Bietney. David is nursing a cold this evening. He'll be back next week. In his stead, we have Jeff Ritzman, paranormal investigator, serving as guest co-host. And paranormal investigator Paul Stonehill joins us. He's co-author of Mysterious Sky, Soviet UFO Phenomenon, available at Amazon and all the usual bookstores. So we're now comparing Moscow with Washington, hmm. with the UFOs anyway. I think the Soviets learned their lessons. And, and I'm not the only one, of course, I mean, I'm the Russian researchers too, when they try to shoot down UFOs. And I, some of the most strange cases happened between 19, excuse me, 1953 to, I would say, 1965. Because in 65, they had orders issued not to shoot at UFOs anymore. They lost a few airplanes, good aircraft, gunned down. No, I mean, no, nobody even knows what happened to it. And of course, it, I, I talk generalities now, but you know, I try, you know, we, we present information as much as possible. We still don't know about all of the cases. The colonel I told you about, Colonel Officer, one of the Soviet top guns who lives in Israel, he reported cases from Central Asia. Later, I found other confirmation. Very mysterious cases when they tried to shoot down gigantic UFOs over their sensitive border areas, and as a result, lost aircraft. And there are more specific cases as well. So by 1970s, they knew, leave the UFOs alone, whatever they are. Yeah, you can study them. And of course, those pesky UFOs would you know, come right over your nuclear silo, you know, you, you become nervous, or, or a space. Uh, ship and uh, you know be being constructed, but it was it was a phenomenon you couldn't do anything about. You had to to take it. And what's more interesting? You said maybe they used this as a pretext for military tests. Absolutely. Right. But what happened that during the during the tests they had UFOs come from nowhere and also be in the area. Very sensitive tests, and that takes me to something more interesting. Also, I see a pattern in the book itself and from the from my research not, not only UFOs but you get a pattern of helpful interference take Chernobyl 1986 as the uh, explosion at the uh, nuclear uh, at the nuclear uh, plant power plant right reports and we give names of UFO of a UFO that actually came to the area and diminished the fire abated results of that explosion actually might have interfered to, to, to lessen the impact. Really? Uh, UFOs came to the area later. We, we give names, we give dates to the same site because, you know, that, that, that nuclear plant is a disaster that, that can happen anytime again if they don't. They don't well, actually shut it down, but that's different. Right. Was is there photographic things? evidence of anything at Chernobyl? Is there any photographs? Uh, of that I, we give a name of somebody who, who, who has, based on, you know, reports from Ukraine who has but you don't. Uh, nobody took photographs during the uh, 1986 during those that day of UFOs. Okay. Only testimonies. There are okay. there's other photographic evidence. It's, do you again, do you have not, um, mm-hmm. do you have the same kind of witness intimidation that that seems to come out of the U.S. with the you know so-called government agents you know telling people who either are at a crash site or at a discovery site or have a sighting, do you have the same kind of effect over in Russia where you have government people telling the general populace, you're not to talk about this, this is not to be discussed, you know, uh, or or at the time where the Russian people really afraid to say much of anything? Well, military people would would have to give uh, so-called a when you sign 
down when, when you put your signature in a document and say you cannot reveal it, it's a state secret. Yeah, right. you, you have, you know, you have that. Uh, intimidation uh, as such, people were, uh, generally in the Soviet Union, people were afraid to speak. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, Russia before the Soviet Union. People were afraid to speak. Today, you know, they may be hesitant. There are other developments to take place. But that, that's not, you know, still, nowadays there's so much information in, the, in Russia. But during the Soviet times, of course, they knew if you speak too much, you can be sent to Siberia. Right. To, to put it that way. So... At the same time, people exchange information. There were even underground publications. I have one or two that I bring with me to lectures. And intimidation as such, I have a report. Somebody actually I know personally, a scientist from Kiev who had observed a wonderful UFO sighting. I mean, I've never heard other descriptions of it. But he wasn't the only one because a report was published in the Kiev newspaper at the time. I think it was early 1980s without going to the chapter itself. Now, he was asked by KGB, very, very interesting, very intensive people, you know, questions. And then he was asked private questions about himself, what he was doing in Kiev, and so forth. So he told them, guys, do you want to know about UFOs, or do you want to know about me personally? Right. You know, what, <laughs> yeah. what I eat in the morning. So, and, and you know, after they knew that they're speaking to an intelligent person, they put aside all stupidity and they say, let's go straight forward. And they ask him very interesting, qualified questions. But as such that, you know, somebody's going to, you know, attack and kill. No. Yeah, yeah, people knew what, what to talk about, what not to talk about. Some right. people got burned for too much interest in UFO research. They lost their jobs. Right. I don't think anybody was per se sent to a concentration camp camp after 1956. You know, before, uh, absolutely. After, no. Hey, we only have a couple of minutes left, so I wanted to just maybe sum up a few things here. Jeff, you have a couple of final questions? Well, I mean, aside from the obvious, which is that there's a lot of similarities going on here, you know, the one thing I'd like to see is is some of <laughs> some of the stuff that the Russian government has as far as photographic data, because I'm kind of a visual guy. I mean, that would be uh, infinitely interesting to see what you talked about, where they were, you know, doing surveillance on the lake and there's something mm -hmm. coming out of the lake. I mean, is there is there absolutely any possible chance that that you think we're ever going to get to see any of that stuff, or do you think that's just not going to happen? It's a state secret, and yeah. uh, I, I, you, I don't like the word never. Uh, we, right. we don't know. You know we, we, <laughs> yeah, we, do not we don't know. either. <laughs> but, right. you know, that lake is in a very sensitive area. There may be, you know, it's in the Central Asia, again, not far from Afghanistan and so forth. They would not reveal it. I don't think at this time. Uh, but you never know what we do. What, like the, some Russian researchers, I, I, at least they said we hope that they, they, they the, the research, military researchers, were able to find out concrete conclusions, and maybe someday we'll find out what it was. Currently, I don't think just just as much as you can hope to get from from Washington. Exactly. And, and I always tell people what's going on in China. I mean, keep an eye. China has a completely different, I would say, approach to UFO research. They have societies supported by, by, by Chinese government. Yeah, very open. Scientists. Paul, before we let you disappear into the ether or wherever you're going after the show, 
tell our listeners very quickly about the book where they can get a copy, Mysterious Sky? A Mysterious Sky, a Soviet UFO phenomenon. You can get it either by going to Publish America book site or Amazon.com. It's available, and I know they keep getting new copies, and I, I hope you like that book. Well, also, it's linked at thepowercast.com. All you have to do is click on that link to get more information about the book and where you can buy a copy. Once again, we want to thank Paul Stonehill, co-author of Mysterious Sky, Soviet UFO Phenomenon, for, I guess we'll call it barely scratching the surface of Russian UFO reports. Obviously, there's a lot more going on there, and we'll want to have you back in the future to talk about it further. And we also want to thank Jeff Ritzman for serving as our guest co-host this evening. Jeff? Yes, sir. Thank you very much for helping me along. And very welcome. Paul, thank you. Thank you. For joining us on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. 